It was actually <coughs> quite a number of years after I've been practicing, just a few years ago now. It hit me really loud and clear while in the middle of a retreat at some point that the way we're instructed to do this practice is exactly the way the practice unfolds all of the time. In other words, we're always beginners. We're always beginning. We're always doing just the stuff that we start by explaining right in the very beginning. It's not like you do uh, level one and then you move on to level two and then you move on to level, you know, like grades in ballet training or whatever, music. It's actually always level one, 101. And so however many times you may have heard this or not at all, um, we can't ever hear enough of it. Because however simple it may sound, it actually, we're just thick. It just takes ages for it to sink in. And initially understanding the teachings may sound logical, may sound pretty straightforward. But what happens as people go on and on is that they keep getting it more. But it's the same it that they keep getting. And so people just go like, oh, of I thought I knew that already. And so you endlessly get this feeling of like, of course, oh, God. It's this sort of extraordinary surprise because you thought you already got it. It's extraordinary how that works in this way. It's not like any other developing skill or learning a body of knowledge. or It doesn't, it doesn't unfold that way at all. So we human beings have survived very well indeed, it would seem, since we began walking on our two feet. And uh, probably the main strategy that we have employed to do so well, survive so um, magnificently on this planet, um, is a strategy to uh, be able to manipulate our surroundings and our um, environment and the various events and objects to please us, to satisfy us, to feed us, to shelter us. Once we learned to be beyond the animal realm and we were able to start to manipulate once we had tools and once we had language, once we were able to predict and plan ahead for future drought and store food over the winter and specialize as we did as we became more agrarian and all the history of humanity. We depended on a strategy which was um, this one of investing our well-being in the various changing circumstances and doing our very best to manipulate them to suit our ends. And we succeeded fairly well, at least so far as um, survival and not starving the majority of people on the planet. So it's a pretty good strategy. However, this strategy has its limits. And the limits are that, well, we know what the limits are. There's like, one of the limits is that we could never quite get on top of that because we could never quite control it. Because all the various things that happen, to some degree we can manipulate, but only to some degree because there are so many forces of acts of God at work here that we aren't completely in charge, as we know. 
So our attempts always are to organize it for ourselves in such a way that it will be what we think the best for us. And we do everything we do all day long is something like this, right? Because of the fact that the, re the reality that we experience, largely coming from outside of ourselves, is beyond our control, really, only temporarily in a limited way, under our control, we end up feeling over and over again somewhat frustrated or somewhat disappointed or somewhat not quite completely that we've got it together yet. Have you got it completely together? Is everything completely done now? Have you made it? Is this it yet? We just got to get a little bit more done, a little bit more training or a little some fixing of something or when the kid grows up or moves out or when the right one comes or when the mortgage is paid or whatever, right? We live endlessly in this state of as soon as we get just this next piece sorted, then we'll be there wherever there is. So as we live in that way, the state of living like that is actually not completely content. So this um, strategy, which the reason why it's so difficult for us is that this strategy has worked fairly well. And so we believe in it. We more than believe in it. We invest our total well-being in this kind of behavior. And so when circumstances shift and change and something disappoints us, we get really upset because we've invested completely in this rearranging of things to suit us. And it's not just to suit us as a, as a society or as a race, unfortunately. It's to suit our own individual needs at the expense of the next person or, you know, it's a very self-centered way of going about things. It's also foolish, I mean, so ludicrous to think that actually we could get it all together and organize everything and have it be just the way we wanted. It's, it's foolish. And yet, we don't want to admit that it's, it's a little foolish or futile. We keep endlessly trying. And when something falls apart or changes, we go for the next thing. And when that thing breaks or we lose it, we go for the next thing and the next thing. Here's a little poem illustrating this. The author was Hafez. Hafez was a, a Persian poet, lived in 1200 or so. Jealousy and most of all of your sufferings are from believing you know better than God. Of course, such a special brand of arrogance as that always proves disastrous and will rip the seams in your caravan tent and then cordially invite in many species of mean biting flies and strange thoughts that will beat you up. <laughs> it's this strange kind of arrogance that we have that we really believe that our strategizing will solve all our problems. It's called in a colloquial way, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> and, you know, that was an amazing film, the way those violinists and stuff, they kept right on playing, they kept right on playing, and let's not really face the real fact, let's just 
keep making it be okay in our small ways. That's how we behave. We keep trying to make it okay in a little way, but we don't really want to see what's actually going on. And we know no other way. So it's not like it's bad. It's just that it's foolish. It doesn't really do it. Or we wouldn't, we know this, or we wouldn't be looking for some other way. We'd be still consuming. One of the ways I describe this behavior, this strategy, is glomming. It's like the mind gloms onto things. For example, without having to crane your necks and swivel your heads far, just release me from your gaze right now and just let your eyes swim around a little bit and look at what you see. Notice what you see. And if I were to ask you what you see, just a few of you say some, some, something that you've seen, please. Lights, trees, hmm? people, two more, flowers, one more, the Buddhas. That's called glomming. In looking around, what your eyes landed on, what your attention landed on was objects. You didn't notice, for instance, that it was somewhat bright, somewhat dark. We didn't particularly notice the floor or the walls or the whiteness. We certainly didn't notice the space. But the vast majority of what's in this room is space. But we don't notice the, the big vagueness. We notice the discrete objects. We glom onto these objects because of the strategy of ours. If they're nice ones, they will make us feel good. And if they're not, they will upset us. So we must sidestep them or get rid of them. And it's the way we have trained ourselves over the millennia to behave. The trouble is with this foolish strategy is that those things that we've noticed in looking, which we do all day long, we have made them into being the supreme provider of our welfare. We have invested in those, whether they're objects or people or conversations or even experiences, events. They then provide us with the response of well-being or not well-being. And then we blame them if they provided us with some negative experience and we praise them and want more of them if they do the reverse, right? The Buddha and the wise ones who wake up and see this, they see the limits of this strategy. And the Buddha, who was so, he was very brilliant and he was very clear. His mind was very organized. And uh, he happened to teach his teachings from the age of his realization, which was 35 until he died at 80. So we have 45 years of his teachings, which were recorded. So we have a lot, a lot of them. and. Uh, he, he was, it was so clever. He said, instead of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, instead of trying to manipulate your world to suit you, how about you accommodating it? Now, how radical is that? Seems pretty simple. But in order to accommodate to the changing experiences, events, people, and so on, we need to not invest in them to provide us with happiness. We need to invest in, us, invest in ourselves and our response to them. But we do not notice that. 
we spend our time looking out through these eyes at the world out there and chase or run away from or entangle ourselves with it in a futile endeavor for permanent well-being. We do get moments of well-being. It's not that it doesn't work at all, but it's got a limited shelf life because once we get something, it stops being so fascinating or it deteriorates or it goes away again or, or we get bored and we need another one or something. So it's no, it doesn't ever really do it. In being able to make this very subtle, radical shift in what we actually give our attention to, our response rather than these events, circumstances, we have to keep over and over training the mind to do it because it's so long and so deep, so well established this behavior that it just does it completely automatically all the time. And so to stop that, to change that behavior is, is a training. And there are two often taught aspects of this training which um, are both required in order to do this. One of them is the steadying and calming and stabilizing of the mind because it's so like liquid. It's so all over the place. Mercurial. This reveals my age, but when I was a kid at school in England, in our laboratories, we had mercury and we played with it. <laughs> and it was fantastically fun and it just was unbelievably impossible to contain and control. It was all over the place, as those of you who are as old as I am know very well. It's a great description of what the mind is like, just all over the place. And you're seeing it. It's, it's shocking. Don't take it personally, but it's embarrassing, isn't it? How the mind is totally, give it a little simple task to do. Nope. <laughs> As I was saying to some of you today, that one of the words we use for this is a mind that's called a puppy, a puppy mind. Like a puppy just can't behave itself and sit still and not pee when it's excited and eat things. And it just doesn't mean to, it just can't help itself. But it's not bad, you know, it just is uncontrolled yet. So the mind is like this all over the place, moving thing. So the first part of meditation these, of these two parts is this calming down and slowing down and focusing and steadying and stabilizing the mind. Very popular book last year, novel, I don't know. I'm sure numbers of you have read it, Eat, Pray and Love. Do you remember that book? When she gets to uh, India, the section in the book is about the, the, the pray part and she's at the ashram. She, she writes a little... Uh, little thing that I remembered. She's, she's talking about meditation and training the mind, and she equates it to training a monkey, like a monkey mind. And she says it's just much easier than telling the monkey to sit still in the corner, to tell it to put that bean in that jar. So the training of the mind, we use beans and jars to help this monkey to stay there and to keep learning to do something, rather than just say, "Stop running around, monkey." That's why we use these various objects. We've been talking about the breath, for instance, today, and the body and walking and so on as beans. And we're putting the beans in the jars over and over to train the mind to be more steady. These, there are many different ways of teaching, of teaching the mind, training the mind, meditation objects, they're called, many, many, and many values, different kinds of values to them. It's not about the beans getting into the jar, of course. It's about the mind being able to do it. 
And so um, we will be teaching you, oh, as the days pass, more different kinds of beans and so on, different kinds of jars. The other aspect that goes with this, though, is um, being able to see ourselves instead of looking at the objects outside is to see our reactions to the various changing events and circumstances. But to be able to see ourselves and to see ourselves clearly, this mind has to be trained by putting beans in jars so that it can actually look and so that it can keep on looking. We can momentarily see, see something about ourselves, but then the mind slips off again and runs around because it's unstable, mercurial. But as it gets more steady and stable, it's able to keep on looking. And it's on that keeping on looking that I, like I talked about, is it just one day? Have we been here 24 hours? <laughs> Last night, um, when I was talking about the, the muddy water slowing down, and it's that steadying that reveals so much of what's there what's here, how we work. One of the uh, descriptions of being able to see how you work, how, you're, how you function as a mind and a body and a, and a you know, source of emotion and responsiveness is like looking behind the scenes at a puppet show and seeing all the strings being pulled. So you can actually see why we are the way we are and how we do what we do and how this triggers this and this leads to this. And, but that can't be known or seen without a mind that's a trained mind to some degree. So we have seeing clearly and we have stability, both these two aspects. The Pali for the stabilizing is shamatha, it's S pronounced sh, shamatha practice, concentration practice. Concentration has lots of different meanings, but really the mean, it means steady or stable. And an image I have is how different it is to have a collie dog compared to a puppy. You know, a collie dog that's a trained collie dog, the one that will actually herd the sheep, and one little squeak on the whistle, and it'll go running off way to the right for a mile, and, and another whistle blow, and it'll sit still. I've seen them in Scotland do this, you know, for half an hour, and not move a muscle if you don't want it to, or crawl forward very slowly. Just a few little whistles, and it knows how to do all this stuff, and will happily wants to do this. That's, that's what I mean. A concentrated mind is a mind that's well-behaved. Not a still mind, necessarily, or a stuck mind, but a mind which will become your friend rather than your tyrannical master. And you probably noticed today that your mind was not doing what you wanted it to do at all. It was doing all kinds of other things. It couldn't even for a few moments do what you were asking it to do. And believe it or not, it's possible to have it actually look at what you want it to look at and to not think things that you don't want to think and to respond in ways that are appropriate. It's extraordinarily useful. And we have this ability, this mind of ours, but untrained, it's a tyrant, a very unruly master and a very, very good servant. Then with this mind that's well-behaved, that can look at itself, it's an amazing thing that human beings have this capacity. We have minds that can look at themselves. With our mind, we can see our mind. And as we see inside our minds and our hearts, this is called insight, inward looking, vipassana, seeing clearly. The Buddha often described himself as a physician. He said, it's like, you're sick and I'm the doctor. 
So you come to me and I say to you, tell me your symptoms. So he is able to describe and reveal to you the various things and you're able to see for yourself the various things, thoughts, feelings, emotions, reactions, tendencies that are there in you. And the Buddha is then, once you can see them, able to say to you how to become well. You can't become well, if this is if you believe in doctors, um, without actually knowing what your symptoms are. You first have to know the symptoms in order to be able to decide what to do about them. So you can, you know, a lot of people do just pretend that they're not well, that they're not ill, that they're fine, and they ignore it. Oh, I'm fine, it's okay. Meanwhile, they're, you know, dragging themselves around and they're just not facing the fact that they've got this and that, the other going on, and which are possibly fixable. So this is a, a practice of looking and seeing what's there and what we see is what's working and what's not working. As we do this, as the mind gets better trained, it's not even that we have to or that we try hard to. As the mind becomes more steady and stable, the gaze becomes more steady and stable, and therefore stuff is revealed. You don't even have to go looking. You just have to be with a trained mind, steady and present, and wow, you see stuff. So actually we do less than we think in doing this training. But it's hard to associate mindfulness of the breath as becoming well. It's extraordinary how it happens, but it, it happens as a result of our willingness to actually look. That's it. That's our job, is to look. And to look we, is to be in the present moment. That's what it means by look. That's what we mean by look. And when we do this, as we keep looking, by being present, we get to know ourselves better and better and better. We get to know ourselves and how we function and how we're working. And we are a stand-in for everybody else. Because actually, we all function in this way. We all have slightly variations. We have certain areas where we get triggered and vulnerabilities and, and strengths and weaknesses. They vary. But how the whole mechanism works is human. And we get to see how humans are with this mind that gets to be steadier. It's amazing. And we get to um, become way more tuned in, way more connected, way more intimate with ourselves. One of the best things about this, and this doesn't happen instantaneously for lots of people, but it does happen, is that we actually get to like ourselves. <laughs> Whereas initially, when we first have to see all the stuff that's there, we just want to see the nice stuff, because we're so used to looking at things, and we want to see nice things, and we don't want to see unpleasant things, that when we start looking and we start seeing unpleasant things in here, oh my goodness, that's not so much fun. Which is why meditation initially isn't the most popular thing. <laughs> Because you can't actually go far without seeing everything. And so who wants to go there? Most of us are in denial or distraction or let's go somewhere else or on to the next fun thing. It's not actually face at all. So it does take, uh, it takes, there's various attitudes and I'm going to describe them a little bit later on, but it takes a certain amount of, um, I like this word, gumption to be willing to do this because you're going to be there with yourself. And uh, it's, you get to realize, especially when you do intensive practice like this, that there isn't anyone doing it to you. There isn't anyone saying anything that's causing you to react or 
there's no one doing anything there. Everyone's minding their own business and, you know, people are just providing you food for heaven's sake and being, you know, friendly managers and you're doing it and it's your stuff and it's your habits and your responses. And we get to see it all. It's like, oh, some, it's embarrassing sometimes. Amazing. So as we, uh, as the mind gets more steady, calms down, like I described looking at, did I describe this last night? I don't think, maybe I didn't. It's like uh, I talked about uh, the jar of water, the glass of water. It's also like um, looking, when you especially haven't much done this, looking inside at your own reality in there, uh, it's like looking into a darkened room. And when you first look into a darkened room, you can't see anything. But if you keep looking, you start being able to make out shades and shapes. And after a while, all these things begin to make sense to you because you start being able to really see clearly. But it's just the steady looking. You know, if you just look quickly, if you look in a dark, you know, closet, oh, there's nothing in there, you shut the door. But if you don't and you stay for a few moments, your, life, your eyes adjust. It's that kind of experience. So we use the word intimacy. I love that. It's kind of, I remember one teacher hearing one teacher say, it's sort of like the way... Um, you get to know something if you were blind. Like say you were blind or blindfolded. And people play this game sometimes. They put an object in your hands and you're blind and you have to figure out what it is. And it takes a while, but you explore its weight and its texture and its bumps and its shape. And, and you get to discover what it is in a very intimate way. In kind of, instead of just the normal way we perceive something, that's not very, it's quite a superficial quick glance we get what something is. But when you really get to explore something, you get to know it way more intimately. Georgia O'Keeffe, the artist, she said um, something about getting to know ourselves takes time, like getting to make a good friend. You just aren't instantaneously friends. Sometimes you meet a friend and you know they're your friend, like right off the bat. But most of the time, it takes getting to know them to build intimacy and trust and familiarity. So this is what we're doing with ourselves. It's gradual and a deepening and an exploring, connecting. Another aspect of this is that, there's, there's so many aspects of this which are important. There's, um, I'll read this little thing. They did an experiment with Zen meditators where a monotonous tapping sound was played, and their brains, this brain, you know, all this brain science happening, and their brain waves were measured. They registered the 40th tap just as strongly as the first one. Whereas the control group of people who weren't meditating, who were exposed to this rhythmic tapping sound, measured the first three and then tuned them out, you know. <laughs> because we actually aren't really there. We just slip off. It's no longer interesting. It's the same old. How we mostly register things is when they change. But when they stay the same and they become the same and become familiar, we don't notice the same way. It's rather like the way um, the guides, I don't know if anybody's been on safari. I haven't, but I've been speaking to people who have. The guides, when you go on safari, um, I'm thinking of you know East Africa, all these extraordinary animals, and you go on safari, and we can't see them because we're not used to seeing in that environment, and they're so well camouflaged. But the guides will take us to where they are, and we'll be able to see them. And how they see them 
so they say, is that they're able to have their gaze, not like a hawk gaze, the way we usually function, but they can kind of open their eyes wide as though they can expand their peripheral vision. And what they notice is movement. And when you see something move, it's changed and you notice it. But when it stays the same, it doesn't catch our attention. It's interesting to think that, how we work. Unless we can train our minds to keep being attentive. But because the, our minds notice things that change, oh yes, this new thing, is this a friend or a foe? Is this poison or is this food? Is this a mate or an enemy here? We notice as they arrive in our field of vision and then we ignore. This training, by steadying the gaze, allows us to keep being open and interested, even with things that seem to stay the same. We develop a kind of fresh view, instead of the normal way where we become sort of stale. Once we've seen something, we think, okay, we know what that is, and then we tune it out. This keeps the mind open and fresh. So this freshness, there's a kind of innocence, is one of the aspects of doing this. And then we notice little things and subtle things that we normally don't notice. So there's a, uh, an enriching that happens in our experience through this training. Once I'll never forget, I was uh, teaching a retreat in uh, Massachusetts, and it was in the, I don't know what time of year it was, come to think of it. It must have been summertime. And um, there was a woman who had not done a lot of meditation experience who came in for an interview. And, uh, and she had, her eyes were just shining and she, she couldn't wait to get in the room and she burst out saying, there are 37 different kinds of green. <laughs> I always remember that. She lived in the city, I live in the country, and I was like, yes, there are when you look. But we just normally do not see anything like the subtlety and beauty and amazing things that are there. Once we've got, if they're a friend or a foe, that's all we need to know. We then, that's as far as we make our decision and carry on, miss the rest. We miss so much. So this fresh noticing is uh, a quality that comes with this training and is required. There's, a, there's the freshness that little children have that aren't already, um, what's that poem by Wendell Berry? Um, Who do not, wait a second, let me just think of this line. Do you remember this Wendell Berry poem, Mark? Do tax their lives with forethought of grief. It was that word tax I couldn't think of. Goes and is with, with wild creatures who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. As soon as there's forethought of grief, then everything's shut down into what we expect, right? There isn't that fresh openness. What I'm describing here is this practice of uh, training mindfulness, which is um, another way we describe it is bare attention. What we mean is, what, what we're trying to develop is the ability to see what is so without what we do about it. Now, we haven't taught this yet in the room as a, as a technique and uh, we probably will in the next couple of days. I think this is a very useful technique, but I'll suggest it right now. Um, and it is uh, one of the meditation practices, which is that of hearing. And I talked about it in one of the groups this afternoon. If you practice hearing, just literally bring your attention to the ears and hearing sounds. I'll stop talking for a moment while you do it. Just whatever sounds are there. See if you can let the sounds be there, whether they're inside your head or from a neighbor. It's pretty quiet outside this time of night. <laughs> 
See if you can let those sounds be there without your mind having to go out to the sound and to explain what it is or where it is. Just let it be sound waves. Be helpful if somebody coughed or something. <laughs> See, the, the tendency of the mind is as soon as some stimulus happens to us is to then have an opinion about it. A comment, a commentary, some explanation, some often getting into planning and scheming and justification or whatever, blaming. There are two separate things happening. There's the event happening and then there's what we do with it. And what we're trying to learn is to notice the thing that's happening and to see the separate extra that the mind does with it. That's the part of looking here. We're used to the looking at the thing, but we're not used to looking at what we do with it. If we can start paying attention to what we do with the things that happen, we can realize that we're endlessly rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And when we see how much we do that and how we do that and when and what we do, it's possible for that to not run us. But until we see that part, that second part, we are going to go on automatically, unconsciously reacting with pleasure and desire for the good things and, and resistance and anxiety over the things that we don't want, right? We'll just continue the same old way. So bear attention is trying to see the ex experience that's happening in its most simple, basic elements and then see how the mind is adding. And we need to see these two separate pieces. Then when we see that the mind that adds the extra, it's a mind, when we watch it, most of the time it's uh, making value judgments and it's preferring this and wanting more of this and not liking that. This starts to show up. As you do this, as the days go by, more and more you start seeing what you're doing, what your mind's thinking, how it's manipulating, how it's commenting, how it's explaining. Endlessly, it's amazing, it's endless. There's a tea, I, somebody gave me a bag of tea once, I've never seen it on, in the shops, I don't know where it's sold. And the, the uh, kind of tea is called constant comment. <laughs> and that's what's going on in there once you start listening and paying attention, you see it. It just won't stop. So we want to be able to learn what that is and how we do that. Now, where it gets really interesting, <clears throat> and uh, there's different ways of describing this, um, is being able to see the difference between the, uh, if the events and the mind, the two separate things. Um, uh, different teachers describe it in different ways. One of the Burmese teachers I've been with recently, he says, it's like knowing that you have two minds. You have the normal mind, which sees things, which hears things, which gets, you know, that just understands what's going on. Then you have, you have that perceives what's going on. Then you have the mind that can see itself. It's like two minds operating. Most of the time when we're not trained, we are just doing our normal thing. Liking this, wanting this, worrying about that, interested in this, not interested in that, etc. The normal way. Two minds is the awareness that that's what we're doing. 
Another way of this uh, being described was uh, one of our colleagues and friends went to Burma and was with a meditation center there practicing. And uh, one of the monks she encountered was an elderly man who had been a monk since he was a little boy. So he had many, many, many years of uh, his monk lifestyle and uh, the Dharma. And he turned, he, to be, he was a scholar. He was a kind of, you know, the kind of mind. He was just interested in all of the teachings. So he was like the equivalent of the Jehovah's Witness. And he knew every, you know, every text, every verse, every anything. So he was an amazing fount of information. And so uh, this uh, colleague of ours, she said to him, if you could take all of these 36 volumes of all of these teachings that you know so well and everything, and if you could encapsulate, if you could distill them down to just one teaching, <laughs> what was the Buddha teaching? And he said, know what you're doing. So it's this ability to, to say, feel excited and to know it, to have these two minds. Another analogy is um, going to the movies. And you're looking at the movie screen, but you're knowing that you're sitting in a chair and it's a screen and there's all this light flickering, as well as that it's a movie. Of course, most of the time, we have forgotten the fact that we're sitting in a chair in a theater with a bunch of other people looking at a, a flat thing with light playing on it. The whole idea is to not remember that. It's not a very good movie if you remember that. But our life is like that. It's like it's a movie, but we have forgotten to know what we're doing. We are in it and we are lost in it, consumed by it, with this mind which is not our friend, which is struggling away, loving and hating and getting angry and getting excited about it, and we have no idea we're doing it. So that's called not being free. And what we're after is lasting happiness, of course, which is why we're here, some sense of well-being and peace, and that comes from being free from this out-of-control reactivity by being completely consumed by our experience without realizing it. Unconscious behavior. Another description which I like to use is, because we, probably because I don't go to the movies very often, I live on an island in the, in the country and the movies aren't the best movies that come around and it's a fair distance to get to this tiny little theater and anyway. So I don't tend to go to the movies, but I do watch TV and I don't watch TV a lot, but I do watch TV. So I tend to use a TV analogy instead of the movie analogy. You're looking at the TV and either you're completely inside the TV, in the drama, scared with the scary parts and excited, you know, and happy with the lovely, loving parts and you've forgotten that we're on the couch or you know you're on the couch watching a TV show. Two minds. So we're developing the other mind, the, t the couch mind. We don't need to develop the TV mind, that's our mind. We need to develop the mind that actually knows what it's doing at the same time. And this is what we call mindfulness. Know what you're doing. When we know what we're doing, we have a semblance of possibility to choose appropriate activity. When we don't know what we're doing, we are on automatic and we get upset or excited with no intention, out of control. And that's our biggest fear, to be out of control, and yet we're completely out of control most of the time. <laughs> I was a midwife for many years, some of you know that, and one of the biggest fears that women would have approaching their labor was that they were going to lose control. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> So it's this um, having some ability to choose, 
comes from the space of being able to realize what's going on. And we don't just, um, it's, not, it's not just that we're on a couch and seeing the TV show. By, by not being inside the TV and not being what we call, we use the word identified with things, with our, you know, our various stories, identified with the fact that this person is a, is a really crazy neighbor or is really irritating or is really beautiful. If we're on the couch, we can say, oh, yes, I'm really getting attracted here. Oh, I'm really getting irritated here. We're seeing with a greater perspective. And when we have a greater perspective, we now can see the whole, or at least more, of the picture. When we see with more of the picture, we understand more of the forces at work to make the thing as it is. So we can see, I'm getting attracted to this person because of such and such and such and such. Instead of just addicted, we actually realize how it's working. We see the strings in the puppeteer's hands instead of just mesmerized by the show. Here's an example of the one mind and the two minds. True stories, two housewives in um, Ireland, Northern Ireland, when there were the troubles in Belfast and Northern Ireland. This is about nine years ago now. And um, they were just two women in the middle of the morning. They'd been shopping. They were walking back home to their houses with their shopping bags. And they were walking down a narrow strip of uh, sidewalk and traffic in the road, and uh, in opposite directions coming up towards each other. One was a Catholic, one was a Protestant. And when they got towards each other, it required to pass each other, especially with their bags of shopping, one of them to step into the street, and neither of them would. And they stood there, and they kind of like, you know, stared each other down, and they just refused to give over. And this was the day when there was a lot of antagonism, and they, they started, you know, becoming a little aggressive and abusive, and, you know, mumbling and muttering, and then people began gathering around them and then people started joining in and hurling insults and it just grew and grew until people were throwing stones and rocks and somebody pulled a gun and somebody got shot. And they didn't really realize what was going to happen but they were just behaving on automatic but you're the wrong religion and so I'm not going to stand down for you. Here's another story. It happened around the same time and we know it's nine years ago so it was nine years ago this I think it was like I don't know what, whether it was December or January, there was a big ice storm in the East Coast, and it was really hit bad in eastern Canada. And, um, you know, pretty disastrous. Lots of people, power and great, you know, ice on all the power cables and all the rest of it. There were two housewives who had to go out in the storm. One of them had a daughter who'd gone into labor, and she had to go be with her. And one of them had a father who'd had a heart attack and gone to hospital, and he, she had to go be with him. And so they're out in the storm in their cars driving down the same road in opposite directions. And they come to a halt opposite each other similarly, but by, not by their own design, there was a tree across the road. So they got out in the middle of this storm, stuck. What are they going to do? They spoke to each other for a moment. They got into each other's cars and they drove off where they needed to go. <laughs> they had some choice there, a little more civilized behavior. This ability to be fresh, to see clearly, um, to calm down, to understand what's going on, to see the strings and all, is only available to a mind which is in the present moment. So this, when we give the various instructions we do and use the different objects we use, we use things which are here in the present moment because the mind is so 
powerful and so brilliant and so easily caught in fantasy and imaginings and all of the extras that it does that we don't want to give it any extra to do. We give it the simplicity of what is actually happening because it's the truth of what's really happening on the elemental level, not the distortion that we then add or the spin that we add that is uh, where the sense is and where we, our understanding lies and so on. So this is why we we give the instructions we do and do this kind of training that we do. It's being here in the present moment, so that's absolutely essential. That's all there is, is the present moment. Anything else is imagined. And uh, we, we live our lives so much in the imaginary realms, and you've seen that. You know, like what percentage of your time in a sitting, you know, were you actually in reality, and how much were you in the imaginary realms? We just live in flights of fancy, don't we, all day long? So uh, this is why we use the things which are simply here to help us be simply here. Even though they seem pretty uninteresting compared to our imaginary realms, we far rather our flights of fancy. They're way more entertaining and colorful and dramatic. But as we keep going, we begin to notice that they may be colorful and they may be mesmerizing, but they're also dangerous. Jack Cornfield, uh, you know who Jack Cornfield is. I don't have to explain that. I'm here at Spirit Rock. Um, he says, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> go there with the other mind. <laughs> the mind that knows what's going on in that mind. There are um, some aspects of how we do this, which have to be underlined, I want to mention. Um, we haven't... We can't, there's lots of different instructions and little subtleties we want to give you, and it just takes time to give them all to you. So um, we haven't mentioned these, but the, uh, I want to describe, there are, I like to suggest anyway, four attitudes that we need as we do this practice. One is an attitude of openness. It's kind of like the freshness that I was talking about. And it's definitely very well um, explained or experienced really by that hearing practice the openness of a mind that just allows whatever is there to be there. Instead of the kind of mind that gloms on and wants this and doesn't want that and is manipulating this and avoiding that. Not that kind of mind. The, the wise mind, the couch mind, is more of an open mind. So I like the word open, open or receptive. And it's an innocence of mind. Uh, when somebody already knows, they're, they're actually not very innocent and they're also not much fun to be with. But when you're with somebody who's interested and available, oh, really? That's fascinating. It's much nicer to have a conversation. And when somebody says, yeah, yeah, I know all about that. <laughs> There's no space in their minds. You can't actually get a conversation going with somebody who's a know-it-all. But with somebody who's interested or open or available, it's possible for something to develop. So that open freshness and innocence, the way children are is uh, an aspect, oh, open. Another one is, um, and it goes with this, uh, uh, curiosity. This is an essential component, curiosity. <coughs> when you're not curious or interested, your attention doesn't go there. When you're interested, your attention will actually follow your interest. And if, you st if you're wanting to steady the mind, you need to continually be interested in something in order to stay with it. So we need to develop this interest. We were talking about this in our group this afternoon. So um, a sense of curiosity and fascination really is essential to keep the mind in the present moment. 
So we need to develop curiosity with something that's in the present moment, the various objects that we're suggesting you use to pay attention to. You don't just pay attention to them, you get interested in them and then you'll keep paying attention to them and the mind will stabilize there more. So this, this curiosity, sometimes the word is used as investigation, but that's a word that I don't like because I think of it as May Gray going around with his little looking, you know, his uh, magnifying glass and trying to figure stuff out. It's way too busy. It's much more of just a staying fascinated like children. Children aren't trying to figure out answers to tell you they know or to try and build up a body of knowledge. They're just plain fascinated. And they look at things just because. So it's that kind of thing. Less sophisticated than uh, investigation in the way I use the word. So I like the word wonder. To wonder. I wonder. If you can wonder, you're open, you're available, life's interesting, you're going to connect, you're going to explore. Wonder. Then there's another element which is really necessary, um, and that's one of friendliness. Because the mind does not want to do what you want it to do. And you're going to see that, and you're going to see all the things that you might not want to see. You're going to see all the things you might want to see, and all the things you don't want to see. And so you do not want to get into this state of judging or frustration or disappointment, or, oh my God, I can't believe this, and beat yourself up over it. You need to actually be friendly with yourself over this. We've got to do this gently, in a friendly way. Encourage ourselves. We talked about this last night. You know, that we're doing this as a gift, actually, a gift to ourselves and a gift to our friends and a gift to our world ultimately. But it's an attitude that's um, one because we actually care about things, not because we're trying to be good, we're trying to succeed or trying to get smart, or it's actually motivated from the heart of caring. So we really need that aspect. Friendly, kind, give yourself a break. You're, you know, you're doing the best you can. Another poem. It'll take me just a second to find it. This is again the same poet Hafez, and um, the word when he uses you, it's another word for God or another word for truth or deep reality, whatever your word is that you want to use. He uses the word you. I long for you so much. I follow barefoot your frozen tracks that are high in the mountains that I know are years old. I long for you so much, I have even begun to travel where I have never been before, like some of you here. You've never been here before. Half is, there is no one in this world who is not looking for God. Everyone is trudging along with as much dignity, courage, and style as they possibly can. So be kind to yourselves, because you're trudging along best you can. And then there is another element. So open and wonder and friendly or loving and um, persistence, steadying. Keep on doing it over and over. Steady, slow, staying with whatever's happening. 
our tendency with this mercurial mind is to a bit of this, bit of this, got this, understand this, the next thing. It's very jumpy and speedy. It's a steadying that's required. And it's a persistence. So there's a steady, gentle, keep on that it's over and over builds a momentum that has an amazing power. This part may seem to be not very interesting, even this word, the idea of it, but it's a huge power in this repetitive persistence because then the habit begins to grow and then the ability to keep doing it on its own grows stronger and stronger and stronger and it takes less and less effort. But you have to get it going. It's just like anything, momentum, any perpetual motion thing has to get started and then it starts building up its own momentum. So momentum is an enormously valuable one of our teachers, my earliest teacher, he'd say, continuity of practice is the secret of success. And it's this persistence or staying power. One of the teachers talks about um, trying to get fire, light, light fire, the way cave people and Boy Scouts and things try and make fire with rubbing sticks together. You just have to keep on going. If you just stop and take a break, you may as well not have started, you know. You've got to keep going. So these are four, open, wonder, loving, and staying. And the mnemonic is OWLS, O-W-L-S. I don't know who noticed, but Mark noticed this morning the owl sitting on the roof. So you can remember that, OWLS. Open, receiving, wonder, fascinating, loving and kind, and keep on going steady. Wonder. I just had a thought of wonder. When I was arriving yesterday afternoon, there was somebody here. I don't know who you are. Somebody was sitting outside as I came in. And there was a turkey, a male turkey, right by where I was walking up, right by that lovely cherry tree, those two cherry trees. Sun was shining on it. It was all glinting and everything. And it was doing its thing. So it's puffed up. It's big red. It's blue face. They're so bizarre, aren't they? <laughs> well, there's this little... Uh, I think the turkey should be part of this, but there's a, there are all these little quotes, but there's a little, little uh, quotes of children's letters to God. And one of the children's letters to God was, um, Dear God, um, did you mean to make giraffes like that or was it a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> and I felt the same thing exactly about this turkey. You know, like, God, was that a mistake or did that mean to be? It's so extraordinary, but it brings that sense of wonder. You know, it's like, it's fascinating when you really look. I mean, something as amazing as that makes you really look, but there many things are as amazing as that, but we don't usually look that closely and see it. That just really does it to us, turkeys. So here you go, turkeys and owls. You can tell I like birds. Mm -hmm. I guess the last thing to say is time's going by. Um, it gets easier. <laughs> what happens with any kind of skill building, it's like fitness muscles or anything, it gets easier. And when you look at really skilled musicians, they don't look like working, they don't look like they're working very hard. They look, it looks like it's just flowing gracefully or gymnasts or dancers or anything, artists, anything, any kind of skill. People get so refined, weavers, I don't know what you think of when you think of that, but they have had to learn laboriously and develop the skill, but it grows. The mu muscle of the mind being present and seeing clearly just grows and grows. 
And uh, one description of this, being mindful in the present moment, seeing clearly with openness, with friendliness, with persistence, as I just described, which is really what it is, what we're trying to develop here. Uh, it's like doing that is like trying to balance yourself on top of a, an archway or a, a dome, actually. And the tendency initially untrained is to keep falling off. You have to climb back up and then balance on this rounded thing. And so it's tippy and it's unreliable and you keep falling off because you haven't done it before. As you get more skilled, it's as though the dome flattens down. So it's less steep, less hard to get there and easier to stay on there until it flattens to the point that it's flat. And it's actually easier to actually be present. And then you can wander off, and you will, but you can also come relatively easily into the present moment. And with more practice, it sinks into a hollow, so that your default place tends to be present and open and interested and kind and friendly. And every so often, you get thrown out by some big upheaval, but actually, it becomes more of your home. And that progress happens by your willingness to keep going. I just want to encourage you of that. And another way of saying it, the moments when you're present add up. And they don't just add up so that they're longer, which is what happens, but also they happen more frequently. And the fascinating thing is you don't seem to be making them happen. Because what you will realize, as you're already seeing, you're present for a moment with your breath, and then you're gone. And you don't know when that happened, and you don't know what triggered it, but you're gone. But then, miraculously, without you realizing anything, without you having done anything to make it happen, you're here again. All of a sudden, you're back on the couch. The TV has spat you out, and you're here again. <laughs> and that happened. How did that happen? That just happened. And that spitting out by the TV will continue happening more and more often. In fact, your visits into the TV will become briefer and be actually less fascinating. And your being on the couch will become more and more of where you reside. And that is, it, it progresses in such a way. Your job is to sincerely want to be present, to be curious, to keep being friendly, to keep on doing it. That's your job. No more. Remember what I'm saying and notice clearly what I'm saying is not and then fix yourself. It's not and then get it together and learn and don't do it again. That's extra. It's just keep looking. As you keep looking, you will keep seeing. As you keep seeing, you will become to understand. As you understand, you will have more compassion for yourself and yourself as a stand-in for the rest of the human race. So you'll become more friendly. You'll become more understanding. You'll become more wise. You'll become happier, nicer. It really works. <laughs> you'll enjoy yourself and your life more, which is, of course, why you're here. So keep on going. I'll end with a little story, and this is a seasonal story about keeping on going that I like to read at this time of year. I live in the country and I have a large garden with several, probably I have now at this point, a thousand of these in my garden. Several times my daughter had telephoned to say, Mother, you must come to see the daffodils before they are over. I wanted to go, but it was a two-hour drive from Laguna to Lake Arrowhead. I'll come next Tuesday, I promised, a little reluctantly on her third call. Next Tuesday dawned cold and rainy. Still, I had promised, so I drove there. When I finally walked into Carolyn's house and hugged and greeted my grandchildren, I said, forget the daffodils, Carolyn. The road's invisible in the clouds and fog, and there's nothing in the world except you and these kids that I want to see enough to drive another inch. She smiled calmly, and she said, we drive the, in this weather all the time, Mother. 
Well, you won't get me back on the road until it clears up, and then I'm heading for home. I was hoping you'd take me over to the garage to pick up my car. How far will we have to drive? Just a few blocks. I'll drive. I'm used to this, she said. After several minutes in the car with her, I had to ask, where are we going? This isn't the way to the garage. We're going to the garage the long way, she smiled, <clears throat> by way of the daffodils. Carolyn, I said sternly, please turn around. It's all right, Mother, I promise you will never forgive yourself if you miss this experience. After about 20 minutes, we turned onto a small gravel road and I saw a small church. On the far side of the church, I saw a hand-lettered sign that read Daffodil Garden. We got out of the car and each took a child's hand and I followed her down the path. We turned a corner and I looked up and gasped. Before me lay the most glorious sight. It looked as though someone had taken a great vat of gold and poured it down over the mountain peak and slopes. The flowers were planted in majestic swirling patterns, great ribbons and swathes of deep orange, white, lemon yellow, salmon pink, saffron, butter yellow. Each different colored variety was planted as a group so that it swirled and flowed like its own river in its own unique hue. There were five acres of flowers. But who has done this? I asked her. It's just one woman, Carolyn said. She lives on the property, that's her home. She pointed to a well-kept A-frame house that looked small and modest in the midst of all that glory. We walked up to the house. On the patio, we saw a poster. Answers to the questions I know you're asking, was the headline. <laughs> the first answer was a simple one, 50,000 bulbs. It read, the second answer, one at a time by one woman, two hands, two feet, and very little brain. <laughs> the third one was, began in 1958. The first answer was, uh, there it was, the daffodil principle. For me, that moment was a life-changing experience. I thought of this woman whom I'd never met, who more than 40 years before had begun one bulb at a time to bring her vision of beauty and joy to an obscure mountaintop. Still, just planting one bulb at a time, year after year, had changed the world. This unknown woman had forever changed the world in which she lived, had created something of ineffable, ineffable magnificence, beauty, and inspiration. The principle her daffodil garden taught is one of the greatest principles of celebration. That is, learning to move towards our goals and desires one step at a time, often just one baby step at a time, and learning to love the doing, learning to use the accumulation of time, when we multiply tiny pieces of time with small increments of daily effort, we too will find we can accomplish magnificent things. We can change the world. Makes me sad in a way, I admitted to Carolyn, what, might have, what I might have accomplished had I thought of wonderful, a wonderful goal 35 or 40 years ago and had worked away at it one bulb at a time through all those years. Just think what I might have been able to achieve. My daughter summed up the message of the day in her usual direct way. Start tomorrow. <laughs> it's so pointless to think of the lost hours of yesterday as the way to make learning a lesson of celebration instead of a cause for regret is only to ask, how can I put this to use today? Author unknown. So thank you. Thank you for your attention and I hope this is helpful. So now we have a period of walking and back for our last sitting 
at nine. So we have just under half an hour to walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.